0: The sermon text this morning is from Judges chapter 4, verses 1 through 24. And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord after Ehud died. And the Lord sold them into the hand of Jabin, king of Canaan, who reigned in Hazor. The commander of his army was Sisera, who lived in Harosheth Hagoyim. Then the people of Israel cried out to the Lord for help for he had 900 chariots of iron, and he oppressed the people of Israel cruelly for 20 years. Now Deborah, a prophetess, the wife of Lapidoth, was judging Israel at the time. She used to sit under the palm of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim, and the people of Israel came up to her for judgment. She sent and summoned Barak, the son of Abinoam. From Kadesh Naphtali, and said to him, Has not the Lord the God of Israel commanded you? Go, gather your men at Mount Tabor, taking 10,000 from the people of Naphtali and the people of Zebulun. And I will draw out Sisera, the general of Jabin's army, to meet you by the river Kishon with his chariots and his troops, and I will give him into your hand. Barak said to her, If you will go with me, I will go, but if you will not go with me, I will not go. And she said, I will surely go with you. Nevertheless, the road on which you are going will not lead to your glory, for the Lord will sell Sisera into the hand of a woman. Then Deborah arose and went with Barak to Kadesh, and Barak called out Zebulun and Naphtali to Kadesh, and ten thousand men went up at his heels, and Deborah went up with him. Now Heber, the Kenite, had separated from the Kenites, the descendants of Hobab, the father-in-law of Moses, and had pitched his tent as far away as the oak in Zananim, which is near Kadesh. When Sisera was told that Barak, the son of Abinoam, had gone up to Mount Tabor, Sisera called out all his chariots, 900 chariots of iron and all the men who were with him, from Hirosheth Hagoyim to the river Kishon. And Deborah said to Barak, up, for this is the day in which the Lord has given Sisera into your hand. Does not the Lord go out before you? So Barak went down from Mount Tabor with 10,000 men following him. And the Lord routed Sisera and all his chariots and all his army before Barak by the edge of the sword. And Sisera got down from his chariot and fled away on foot. And Barak pursued the chariots and the army of Hirosheth Hagoyim, and all the army of Sisera fell by the edge of the sword, not a man was left. But Sisera fled away on foot to the tent of Jael, the wife of Heber the Kenite, for there was peace between Jabin the king of Hazor and the house of Heber the Kenite. And Jael came out to meet Sisera and said to him, Turn aside, my lord, turn aside to me, do not be afraid. So he turned aside To her into the tent, and she covered him with a rug. And he said to her, Please give me a little water to drink, for I am thirsty. So she opened a skin of milk and gave him a drink and covered him. And he said to her, Stand at the opening of the tent, and if any man comes and asks you, Is anyone here? say no. But Jael, the wife of Heber, took a tent peg and took a hammer in her hand. Then she went softly to him and drove the peg into his temple until it went down into the ground while he was lying fast asleep from weariness. So he died. And behold, as Barak was pursuing Sisera, Jael went out to meet him and said to him, Come, and I will show you the man whom you are seeking. So he went into her tent, and there lay Sisera dead with the tent peg in his temple Soon, so on that day, God subdued Jabin, the king of Canaan, before the people of Israel. And the hand of the people of Israel pressed harder and harder against Jabin, the king of Canaan, until they destroyed Jabin, the king of Canaan.
1: Gimme, that was excellent work. Thank you. I told her I couldn't pronounce half those names. Could you just do it for me? Well, it's really good to see your faces. It's been a long time. Some of you, I think, have gotten a little bit older. You look a little bit older than you did last time I saw your faces. Well, very thankful for the text today. We'll be looking at chapters 4 and 5 together. We're going to tackle both of them. The reason is because they tell the same story. Uh, One, of course, chapter 4 is more narrative. It's the events. Chapter 5 is a song. Uh, that speaks to the greatness of God in the events that we just read about. Now, of course, this is the story of Deborah and, and Barak and, uh, and Jael, and we often think about it in those terms. I want you to know that those players are really part of a, they're the smaller part of a bigger story of God. This passage is really about the greatness of God and how he saves, how he delivers, how he comes to us, and saves us both in life and death. It's an incredible passage to kind of focus on the character of God in the midst of our struggles. So that's what we'll look at. We'll look at four, and then I'll dip into five. But I want you to understand, we're going to look at two parts of this, these two chapters. One is the dilemma that we have. Because the, the chapter four, verses one to three, speaks about a dilemma. We all have this struggle the dilemma and there's also this deliverance that of course you heard the story of but we have got to get the dilemma down and here's why you know if a if a child's lost or someone's lost and a search party goes out for them and they don't know that they're lost when the search party comes and excited to find the one that they've been looking for well the one that's been lost isn't excited he's surprised what was all the fuss about they don't even know their loss. That's half the problem of this text is we don't understand the dilemma that we live in. So we're going to look at the dilemma and then the deliverance, and then we'll speak to some lessons from it. So look with me at verses 1 to 3 again, because this really highlights the dilemma that we keep seeing. And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. After Ehud died, and the Lord sold them into the hand of Jabin, king of Canaan, who reigned in Hazor. Then the people of Israel cried out to the Lord for help. <clears throat> for he had 900 chariots of iron and oppressed the people of Israel cruelly for 20 years. So do you see the theme that keeps going, right? The, the judge dies, Ahud dies, and you find the people wandering back into their trouble again. They wander back into idolatry. Now, now, this is not unlike us, right? You often see this in the family that's raising a child, and they're trying to govern and lead and love the child well. And then when the child goes to college, you know, that's where the true character is beginning to be revealed. The restrictions have been removed, and now you find out what they're really made of. This is the same thing here. When the judge dies, this is really a call for good, godly leadership. When the judge dies, and we find out what these people are like. And what we find out is they move back into their wandering hearts. It says they did evil in the sight of the Lord. Now, For four weeks now, we know what that evil is. It is forgetting God and pursuing other gods. And they always go hand in hand. Those who forget God, we are worshipers. We're going to worship something. We're going to pursue something. And so if it's not God, it's going to be the things that God has made. And that's what we find here. And to this kind of rebellion, God brings discipline. He's a godly father. He's a jealous father. He wants our hearts. And so he brings the oppression and the oppression. You see it in the text, he says, and he sold them into their hand. God gives them over. He warned this. Go back and read Joshua 23 and Joshua 24. He doesn't do this out of vindictiveness. He does this to teach them that if you want to worship those gods, then you're going to serve the gods that you worship. It was a cruel. You notice that he has given them into the hands. Now, this is the third time, but this time it says they were cruel. Canaanites were cruel. Listen power corrupts absolute power corrupts absolutely and you see it in this context it was a military rule. It was a harsh rule. You lose your personal freedoms. You lose economic freedoms again We don't know this kind of oppression in this country. We don't know what this feels like But they did and this is why they're crying out to God. They cry out to God for help I don't think they're crying out for deliverance I think they're feeling the weight of the oppression and they're asking God for relief. Don't think it's repentance. But God's bringing them to a place of seeing their need for him. I want you to see this as the grace of God. I really do. Remember back in chapter 3, God said, I'm going to leave the nations in the land and the nations are going to test you. Now God isn't saying they're going to be tested so that God can see what they're really like. Uh, The nations are left in the land to test Israel so that Israel sees what they're really like. That they see the wandering nature of their hearts. That they would see how prone they are to worship things made and not the one who made those things. So this is the dilemma. If they don't get that, that the ultimate problem is not the culture, it's not the government, it's not healthy. If they don't ultimately get that the problem begins in their own soul, then they're not going to rejoice over the deliverance that will come. We find the same thing with us. You know, the, the passage keeps going back to the nature of idolatry. Do you know how to define idolatry? Do you know what idolatry is? It, it, it's simply the exchanging of the glory of God for the glory of something made, it, it's making a switch. It can be success, it can be wealth, it can be thinness, it can be prettiness, it can be. S- promotions, it can be any number of things. It can be good things, it can be family, it can be parenting. In other words, idolatry is those things that we try to draw meaning and value and purpose out of, that we find security in, that we find rest in. Now, now we all tend toward these things. Do you realize that this is the dilemma, is trying to show us that we all have these wandering hearts? You In 1979, there was a, a great hit Written by Bob Dylan, no less. And the great hit was, and recognized by all, you got to serve somebody. you got to serve somebody. He's showing us that we all serve somebody. Let me just read you a couple lines from it. You may be an ambassador to England or France. You may like to gamble. You might like to dance. You may be the heavyweight champion of the world. You may be a socialite with a long string of pearls but you're going to have to serve somebody. Yes, indeed, you're going to have to serve somebody. You may be a businessman or some high-degree thief. They may call you doctor. They may call you thief, chief. But you're going to have to serve somebody. Yes, you're going to have to serve somebody. That is the nature of our hearts. Do you get that? Do you get that our hearts are always prone to wander? That the problem resides ultimately, at least primarily, within our own souls our tendencies to forget God and to pursue the things that God has made. Again, it can be good things. What do you find in your identity in? Is it in a relationship? Is it in your job? What do you find the greatest security in? Is it having a certain degree of wealth? What do you look to that really gives you meaning and purpose? Is it your business or your place in the business world? that really gives you a sense of I am known, I am somebody? You know, the nature of the sin of idolatry is is that it it doesn't change. You you know, the excitement that you have from some sin today becomes old to you tomorrow. The, The only thing that changes with sin is its deepening and its gripping power on you. It starts out small and manageable, but then it gets a little bit more out of control. Maybe you heard about that rocket scientist in Houston. He, uh, he had a a, a a Bengal tiger as a pup. Uh, Fifteen or twenty pounds is probably cute and manageable. Well, this guy, uh, somehow it got out of its pen and it was roaming around the neighborhoods in Houston. They, they couldn't find it, I think just yesterday, the day before they finally, they arrested him, and he should be in the cage actually, but they arrested him, and, and they finally found the big cat. This is a 400-pound Bengal tiger. It starts out small and cute. It, it doesn't end that way. It, it's quite manageable at the beginning, but it really isn't manageable at the end. That's the nature of sin. Uh, We dabble in it. We play in it. We pursue these different gods that bring us satisfaction and joy. We think it's okay. You know, I can do this. I can handle this. And before you know it, it's a 400-pound cat. You know, the the dilemma that they're facing is that it's it's inescapable. Our hearts are prone to wander. Do you realize that? This is the, the dilemma. This is the dilemma that we have. Again, it's not outside. It begins right here. This is why we need to be born again. This is why the Christian faith teaches you have to be born anew. You know, we keep reading, and they did evil in the sight of the Lord, and they did evil in the sight of the Lord. They keep getting delivered. What do they go back to? It's like Groundhog Day. They did evil in the sight of the Lord. The next judge is Gideon. In chapter 6, verses 1 through 5, they did evil in the sight of the Lord. So, folks, we have to be born again. Now, if you're a Christian here, you can rejoice with me that you have been born anew, that he's taken out your heart of stone and put in a heart of flesh, that while you're tempted, you still find your way back by the Spirit of God. But if you're not a Christian here, this is the first step of Christianity. You have to be born again. You have to say, God, it's here is the problem. Uh, we may have issues out there, but we've got to start right here first. And that is that my heart finds joy in things other than the giver of all joy. So that's the first dilemma. If we don't get the dilemma down, the deliverance that we're going to talk about will make little sense to you. It will have little appeal. That's why a lot of the first step in evangelism is deconstruction. We're trying to help people see they've got the problem. It's not their husbands or their wives or their kids or their jobs or their health. The problem is right here. And that's what we keep finding over and over again in this book of Judges. have to be born again. God has to do a work. To regenerate in us, to revive us, to make us new. Okay, so these people were not getting that message. And yet God in mercy delivers them. Now, let's look at how God delivers them. Because he uses these three, this holy trio, these three musketeers come along. Look with me at Deborah. Now, Deborah is a woman, which ought to kind of catch us off guard. She is a judge. She is a prophetess, and she's actually a wife. Look with me at four and five. Now, Deborah, a prophetess, the wife of Labadoth, was judging Israel at the time. She used to sit under the palm of Deborah. It was named after her. It was written later. Between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim, and the people of Israel came up to her for judgment. <clears throat> this is really unique here. I mean, Deborah is a prophetess. She's speaking the word of God. She's instructing in the words of God. Uh, she is not just a prophetess, but she is a judge. She's judging Israel. She's rendering wisdom on cases, moral, civil, familial. She's bringing the wisdom of God to these cases. Israel is coming to her. She is a key player in the history of Israel at this time. It says in chapter 5 that she's the mother of Israel. So here we have Deborah. She's a working wife, serving the people of God with the gifts that God has given to her. So there's Deborah. She's going to play a role in bringing about this deliverance. But then we read about Barak. Now, now Barak, you see him in six to eight. She sent and com- summoned Barak, the son of Abinoam, from Kadesh Naphtali and said to him, Has not the Lord, the God of Israel, commanded you, go, gather your men at Mount Tabor, Tabor, taking 10,000 from the people of Naphtali and the people of Zebulun. It is a town of friendly people right down the road. And I will draw out Sisera, the general of Jabin's army, to meet you by the river, Kishon, with his chariots and troops, and I will give him into your hand. Barak said to her, if you go with me, I will go. If you will not go with me, I will not go. Now, Barak gets a bad rap. Perhaps you've heard this, you know, you heard that he kind of was a coward and he's reluctant to go in the battle and needs mommy to go with me and I won't go without him. And perhaps you've heard that from preachers and other commentators. Well, I'm going to be the guy that tells you I think he's a hero. I think he's a man full of faith. Now you say, why do I say that? Well, there's something about Barak here. He, he, he says, uh um, that if you go with me, I will go, but if you will not go with me, I will not go. Now, people read that as reluctance. I read that as faith. The language that he's speaking comes from Exodus 33, when Moses is speaking to God. God is calling him to go and deliver Israel. And he says the same words, if you go, I will go. If you don't go, I will not go. In other words, he's looking at Deborah. She is a prophetess. She is the mouthpiece of God for the people. To have her accompany him on this battle is a good thing. It's the same joy that the army took when Samuel, the judge, went with him. To compliment the general of the Lord's army with the mouthpiece of God makes sense. You see what she says to him. She says, I will surely go with you. So she agrees to go with him, not reluctantly. Now she says this in verse 9. She says, I will surely go with you. Nevertheless, the road on which you're going will not lead to your glory, for the Lord will sell Sisera into the hand of a woman. Now people hear that and they think, ah, see, he blew it. He's not going to get the glory now because he didn't go in faith. I'm saying he did go in faith, and I'm saying this is not a rebuke. Of Barak. It's not a rebuke. It's a prophetic statement. Deborah is saying that God will receive more glory when Sisera dies from the hand of an ordinary housewife rather than at the hands of the general of Israel's army. No, this it's just a prophetic statement. God has so designed that he's going to get glory, more glory, from Sisera being killed from this woman than from you. I think he has great faith. In fact, she commends him. In chapter five, verse nine, she says, "My heart goes out to the commanders of Israel who offered themselves willingly among the people. Bless the Lord." So I think Deborah is commending Barak, not condemning him. He has to have faith. You know what he did? He took ten thousand men and he ran down a hill and he attacked a mechanized army. We're moving from the Bronze Age to the Iron Age. These were iron chariots attacking tanks. These are incredible. Remember now, in chapter 5, verse 8, the question is asked, was there spear or sword among them? No. They're, what are they running down with? Farming implements. You take 10,000 men, it's a lot of men, no doubt, but you've got close to 1,000 iron chariots, and I'm going to run down there with a rake. That takes faith. It takes a lot of faith, but he runs down there because he's a man of faith. He runs down there and it says, here's what happened. It says, so Barak went down from main Tabor with 10,000 men and the Lord routed Sisera and all of his chariots and his army before Barak by the edge of the sword. Now, the word rout means that they were thrown into massive confusion, massive confusion. So what caused the confusion? It can't be a bunch of farmers running down with rakes and hoes It's God routed them. Uh, So we learn in chapter 5, verses 20 and 21, it says, From heavens the stars fought. From their courses they fought against Sisera. The torrent Kishon swept them away. The ancient torrent, the torrent Kishon, march on my soul with might. Most commentators understand this to be. Metaphorical language for God opening up the heavens, bringing down torrential rain, rain filling the river. Kishon was a dry river basin. This was the dry season. They would have never taken chariots out during the rainy season because the wheels get stuck in the mud. They become immobilized and they're useless. God brought down the rains and the rains filled up that valley and swept those men and immobilized those chariots so that their great advantage now became a disadvantage, and they lost that day. It reminds you of another action of God, doesn't it? In Exodus chapter 14, those chariots of Egypt went right into the Red Sea, and God brought down the Red Sea upon them and swept them away. God is delivering them through Barak. He's a man of faith. This is why in Hebrews chapter 11, in that chapter, the hall of faith, we say, And what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel, and the prophets who through faith conquered kingdoms and put armies to flight. So here, in this hall of faith, Deborah's not mentioned. Jael's not mentioned. But Barak is. So I hope I've convinced you that he's a hero. He's not a reluctant warrior, but he's a hero. So he's the second musketeer. The third one is Jael. Jael is, of course, this ordinary wife. Now, Sisera, of course, his, um, his chariot is immobilized, so he runs away on foot. Now, he runs and he finds this tent. So, so this Jael was a Kenite. Okay, the Kenites were descendants of Moses' father-in-law. They were in the southern part of the kingdom. You notice in your text, in verse 11, it says that some broke away and went up to the north. That family that broke, and we're going to get back to that in a minute, but that family that broke away made a peace treaty with Jabin, the king of Hazor. And so he goes into the tent thinking, I'm in good shape. She's an ally. Now, we don't know Jael's motivation. We don't know if she just saw, well, if he's running away on foot, I want to get on the right side or right here. I don't know what motivated her. I don't know if she was a a believer in Yahweh. But what she did was the work of God. So she gave him milk. She deceived him. She's like Ehud in this way. In fact, she gives him milk, which would cause him to rest, feel safe, falls asleep. And then she drives a tent peg into his temple and crushes his head. The same word for thrusting the tent peg into his head is the word used for Ehud when he thrusts the knife into the belly of Eglon. God is bringing judgment on Sisera. Here's the point. God received more glory from an ordinary housewife using a hammer and a tent peg than Sisera that he would have had if he had even lost in battle to a foe, an opponent that was trained like him. You know, you put Sisera and, and Jael in the ring together, he's going to win every single time. And yet here, she, he dies beneath her feet. It's incredible. So, so let me just see here. You have the dilemma. You have the people of Israel constantly wandering into idolatry. That's our temptation. But then God in his mercy delivers them, and he delivers them Through these servants. So let me just draw a couple points of application from the lives of these servants. First off, you see in their lives that servants always seek the glory of God. They seek the glory of God. Remember now in chapter 4, verse 9, when she says the road you're traveling on won't lead to your glory, Barak probably said, of course not. We We want God to get the glory. That the servants of God are always for the glory of God. This is a reminder to each one of us. I mean, the way you're leading your family, uh, the way you're working. Do you work with the glory of God in mind? Do you parent that way? Do you handle your relationships that way? How often do you try to seek the glory for yourself? You know, take conversations and spin them back to yourself. How often do you work? You go into work thinking, I want God to be glorified today. I want to speak with integrity. I want, to sp- I want to work diligently. I want God to be honored through the use of my gifts for his purposes. Or even in ministry. In ministry, you think, well, that's easy for the glory of God. No, it's not. You may post something and want to count how many likes get, get How many get hit. Or how many shares. In, in ministry, it can be very much for your glory. Do they like me? any affirmation do they respect me in a certain way do they call me a certain title the temptation is that even in serving the Lord that it can still be about us the Barak had no uncertainties no he doesn't want the glory we want God to be glorified that's why Paul says in first Corinthians ten thirty one: whatever you do whether you eat or drink do it all for the glory of God even something as fundamental as eating and drinking God, I want to do this, recognizing your glory, your greatness in my life. This won't come to you naturally. You want to seek to live for his glory, not for your own glory. Uh, But not only that, you see these servants of God seek the glory of God, but they also are undaunted by their weaknesses. They're undaunted by them. Look at J.L., I mean, would she have a hammer and a peg? Now, back in this kind of culture, the women were responsible to put up tents and take tents down. So these were just normal tools of her trade. She hasn't been trained. She doesn't have any, you know, she hasn't been educated, trained. She's not a mighty warrior. She just used what she had, which was a a hammer and a tent peg. And she did the work of God in bringing judgment to this man. How many times, and we've been speaking about this lately, how many times do you look at your own weakness and say, I couldn't do it? Look at how weak I am. And yet God's strength is made perfect, not in your strength, but in your weakness. So your weakness actually becomes an instrument for God to use. You don't see it that way. You see weaknesses to hide and shade and not you know, kind of discount your involvement because I'm weak in this area. I would even put before you, what is one area that you say, yeah, I'm really weak in that, that you might try something in that? In other words, for the glory of God, that's what servants do, they work in their weaknesses. That's why Paul says Christ's power is made perfect in my weakness. This is what Charles Spurgeon said on this. He says, the Lord can still use feeble instrumentalities, that's us, why not me? He may use persons who are not commonly called to great public engagements. Why not you? The woman who slew the enemy of Israel was no Amazon. I can't even figure what that means. But a wife who tarried in her tent. She was no order, but a woman who milked the cows and made butter. May not the Lord use any of us to accomplish his purpose? Somebody may come to the house today. Even as Sisera came to jail's tent. Be it is not to slay him, but to save him. Let us receive him with great kindness and then bring forth the blessed truth of salvation by the Lord Jesus, our great substitute, and press home the command, believe and live. Who knows, but some stout-hearted sinner may be slain by the gospel today. So, so the servants of God are not daunted. They're not stopped by their weaknesses. And then thirdly, the servants of God are women. They're women. Deborah is unique here. But she's not to be. God delights in godly women. She's an intelligent, a wise, able-bodied woman. I mean, she is a prophetess. She knows the word of God. She trusts in the word of God. She speaks the word of God. She instructs with the word of God. She's using her gifts. It's not, there's nothing in the text that would indicate there were no male prophets, so God had to turn to a woman as a prophetess. No, God called her, and she's using the gifts. You know, the distribution of the gifts, teaching, leadership, charity, administration, helps. They're not distributed by gender. They're the Spirit of God to the people of God. Now, this text is usually taken in two different ways. Some who might be more of an egalitarian persuasion want to look at this text, and they want to say, see, this shows us that the gender roles now no longer exist that women and men can occupy any role in society or in the church together. I don't think it advances that. I think it's a narrative, so it's describing a situation. It's not proscribing something. Number two, you see that she still is identified as the wife of Lipidith. You never see a man in Scripture identified as the husband of so-and-so. And you also still recognize in the Old Testament the priesthood was, was still to be male only. So with that, and, and, and it's, a, um, it's a theocracy in Israel as well. So, so for those that would see this as kind of destroying all the distinctions between men and women in the church, I don't think the case can be proven from this text. Not only that, but the clear teaching of the New Testament, that the role of elder pastor is to be male. At the same time, This is a pushback to the traditionalist who says, well, women shouldn't be doing that. Women shouldn't do this over here. Uh, Women are relegated to these gifts in this time. That's not the case. I mean, you see her. She knows the word of God. She's instructing in the word of God. She's using her gifts. So ladies, heed the call of God to serve with the gifts and the ministries that he's called you to. This is an incredibly important passage for us to uphold are godly women to walk out. Know the word of God. Live the word of God. Share it. Walk out your call in faithfulness. This is not a, is not a destruction of the role distinctions that God has given to us, but it sure does remind women. God delights in godly women. And, and then last, I would say, just in terms of these three saints who are serving, is that servants are called to embrace the cost. You may not know this unless you go back and read chapter 5, but Deborah in her song in chapter 5 actually chides and rebukes the other tribes of Israel that did not participate in this battle. Let me give you one example in chapter 5, verse 17. Gilead stayed beyond the Jordan, and Dan, why did he stay with the ships? Asher sat still at the coast of the sea, staying by his landings. She is calling out. She is calling out the tribes that did not get engaged in the battle that was the Lord's. Now, why did they stay behind? Fear? They stayed beyond the Jordan. They didn't want to go against those tanks. Dan, he wanted to stay by his ships. That's where the prophet was. Asher, he's staying by the coastland. People were not engaging in the ministry that God had called them to do. Now, I I would say just particularly a word to men here. You know, passivity can be, uh, can result in godlessness, just like deep, dark sin. You know, these tribes were called by God to know their gifts and employ them, and they didn't do it. They stayed out of the game. This is a warning to us. Saints embrace the cost of ministry. It is difficult. It may be challenging. It may impose on your time. It may impose on on your convenience or your comfort. Uh, but, But this is a call to don't stay beyond the Jordan. Don't sit by your ships, but get engaged in the work of ministry. It's a clear call to us for that. Okay, so we have here the dilemma. And we have the deliverance that we see. Let me just draw a couple of lessons out to kind of close the sermon. Uh, number one, you see here is that salvation is always from God. Salvation belongs to God. You see it in chapter 4, verse 7. He says, and I will draw out Sisera, the general of Jabin's army. That's God saying, I'm drawing him out. I'm going to coax him to come. You see it in verse, chapter 4, verse 9. The Lord will sell Sisera into the hands of a woman. That's God's sovereign hand drawing him to the tent. In 4, 14 and 15, the Lord has given Sisera into your hand. The Lord routed Sisera and all of his chariots. This is God doing the work. In other words, when you're tempted to wander back into idolatry, when you're tempted to forget about the Lord your God, when you get into trouble, you have distress, you have a health crisis, and you're, tended to, you're, you're tempted to turn to all these other things, what can become idolatry, turn to God, cry out to God. Uh, you see that God is gracious. He saves a people that were crying out to him but weren't even repenting in, full, in fullness. T- to ask God for help, particularly if you're here and you're not a Christian. This is the way you enter Christianity, is that you call out to God and you repent of your sins. You say, God, I've made a mess of my life. You know, the Israelites were under the oppression of their own making. We are often suffering from the sins and from the oppression of our own making. Call out to God and repent and put your faith in the one who can make us new, Jesus Christ. But if you're a Christian here and you find yourself wandering away, then confess your sin. Confess your temptation to look to people and things for your identity and value and security. And turn again to God and say, God, be the treasure of my heart. That's what we were singing today. Be the treasure of my heart. So the first lesson is turn to God. Listen, we may experience, you know, we come out of COVID, we go into gas crisis. I have no idea what's coming next. It is like a carnival out there. And so we're just going to call out to God. I mean, if he can route a 900 chariot mechanized army, with a bunch of men with rakes and hoes and shovels, I think he can serve us well. We just come to him, but confess when you wander. That's the first thing. The second thing is, let's begin to look at life with two dimensions, not just one dimension. We tend to look at life only by the physical, only by the material, and only by the temporal. When you look at chapter 5, you really see all that God is doing behind the scenes. The whole chapter is about God saving them. And that's what I wanted to bring up with you, that chapter 4, verses 11 and 17. Did you notice in chapter 4, verse 11, it says that some of those Kenites went north. Now, it's inserted in the middle of a story it doesn't belong. It's as if someone just edited and stuck it in there. You're reading the the narrative, and all of a sudden we read about these Kenites, and all of a sudden, you know, then we go right back to the battle. Why is it? Well, because in verse 17, they had to be there. Why? Because God sovereignly placed them there, so when Sisera went to the tent, she was there to bring judgment. God organized that. These things are going behind the scenes. I, I, I mean, this idea of drawing Sisera out, why are they taking their chariots out, the bringing down of the rain? This is, this is God's moving all the while we're moving. So we have to begin looking with, at life with two dimensions. I mean, again, you look at COVID, you look at the gas crisis. We're asking the question, God, what are you doing here? God, you're in the midst of this. What are you doing? How are you using this, this trial or difficulty? I mean, what are you doing behind the scenes? How are you softening up hearts? How are you hardening hearts? Don't look at life one dimensionally. Look at life as having two layers to it. God is sovereignly involved in the affairs of his people. Wherever you are right now, you are not far away from God. Remember, neither life nor death nor angels nor demons nor things present nor things to come, neither height nor depth nor anything else. in all of creation will be able to separate you from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus. He is near those who call out. The third thing we see, a third lesson we see here, is that this judgment shows a future judgment. The judgment of Sisera shows a future judgment. Let me just remind you, that the, that the Canaanites were wicked to those that they conquered. They were wicked to them. Uh, you'll notice in chapter 5, let me read to you, uh, 28 to 30. Now, Deborah is being sarcastic here. She's putting words into the mouth of Sisera's mother. Uh, let me read it, and I'll explain it. Out of the window she peered. This is Deborah singing. Out of the window she peered, the mother of Sisera, wailed through the lattice, Why is his chariot so long in coming? Why tarry the hoofbeats of his chariots? Her wisest princesses answer. Indeed, she answers herself. Have they not found and divided the spoil? A womb or two for every man. Do You see what's happening? They're putting words in the sister's mother is waiting for him. Now, she doesn't know that he's dead, but she is waiting for him. But did you notice the reason he's delayed is because typically it would be a womb or two for every man. In other words, they'd rape the women. They'd rape the women or they'd take them as as sex objects or trafficking or sex slaves they would take them. And here, God brought judgment to him by the hands of a woman. Isn't there kind of a sweet justice to that? This one who oppressed women sexually and that he is now judged by a woman, as it were. He's judged by her. She drove the tent peg, not Barak. This is just a picture of what God will ultimately do. He will bring about a perfect, almost a sweet justice. Now I know in this life, not every act of sin is met with justice in this way, but it's a snapshot of what God will do one day. And this is why we can be freed to love even our enemies, because he will bring vengeance. That's Paul's point in Romans 12. Never avenge yourselves. Leave it to the wrath of God. Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. Don't be overcome by evil. Overcome evil with good. This is why we as Christians don't attack if we're attacked. We don't go after. We don't arm up. We serve those. We pray for those who persecute us. Why? God will deal with it. If he can deal with it in this manner, he will deal with it fine. And then the last thing, the last lesson I would say to you is that I think that we are to see in this text, deliverance always comes through judgment. Deliverance comes through judgment. You notice that at the end of chapter 5, that in fact, the land had rest for 40 years. They had peace. There was reconciliation. It was a beautiful. It's a picture of what God is giving to the people of God. There will be a rest for us. It's kind of a, a snapshot of heaven. But you see that that peace came through judgment, through the judgment of Sisera, that the judgment of Sisera brought peace. But how was he judged? He was judged by a tent peg crushing his skull. What does that remind you of? Does that remind you of back in Genesis chapter 3? After the man and the woman sinned and God made a prophecy says that the child born of the woman will crush the head of the serpent Sisera is like a personification of evil of sin and sin is being judged. It's a picture of what God will do to sin. When you look back, it's from Genesis 315. When you look forward, you look at Christ. Who was judged for our sin? Our sin was put upon Christ. And God crushed him for our sin so that we now have peace with God the peace we have is a legitimate peace the rest we have is an eternal rest because our sins have been atoned for they will get back into sin again we've learned we have an eternal rest we have eternal forgiveness those with faith in Christ those for whom their sins have been put upon the son he now has been judged and out of his judgment we have deliverance. This is the Christian message. This is why all the judges are pointing to Christ. We have much to rejoice over. Just another incredible lesson that God is sovereign. We look at life two-dimensionally. God will bring judgment. We don't need to avenge. We can love. And we see here that our own deliverance has come through the judgment of Christ, who's born our sin. He is a gracious God. He is a kind God doing this before you and I were asking for it. Let's take just a moment now and give thanks to him or perhaps repent to him. Ask him for grace to understand this.